decades of poor research, a broken peer review system, false health and nutrition doctrines, inadequate regulation, and a culture dominated by powerful vested financial interests have combined to make the world's supermarkets into minefields of bad information and products that put our health, our lives, and our planet at risk. It's time to see beyond the two-for-one offers, the health aura products, and the shiny false promises on every shelf. It's time to let the real healing begin. I'm Melody Patterson Meta. I'm Melody and this Patterson Meta. Is reinventing and the this supermarket. Is reinventing the supermarket. Hello, I'm pretty thrilled today to be welcoming the brilliant and sometimes controversial scientist Professor Tim Noakes. While Professor Noakes has been known for decades as a thought leader in sports medicine and nutrition, he's now become a major force promoting the health benefits of what is called the low-carb, high-fat way of eating. Online you'll see it most often written in its abbreviated form, LCHF. If you happen to be South African, you'll know Professor Noakes and the diet under the term of banting. And if you're Australian, you might know it as the low-carb diet Dr. Peter Bruckner brought to members of the Australian cricket team with so much success. Some of you might also know Professor Noakes from the documentary Serial Killers, which shows just how quickly and positively our health can respond when we shift to a diet of healthy nutrients. Tim Noakes, of course, was an early advocate of what's known as carb loading in endurance sports. So we're going to talk a bit about how he could make such a radical shift of perspective that he now recommends the complete opposite, not just for ordinary people, but for endurance sports participants as well. We'll be talking about the effects of refined and unrefined starches and carbohydrates on the human body, and we'll be discussing some of the buzz terms in the nutrition and packaged goods worlds, such as whole grains, energy, glycemic index, and fiber. So hopefully you'll be a little more cynical when reading labels in the future. Importantly, we'll be discussing how all of this can and does affect your heart health and whether or not you're likely to develop type 2 diabetes. So let's get going. My recent discussion with Professor Tim Noakes, the role of carbs and sugars in heart health and diabetes, completely rethinking the foods that we associate with health, and how important are those cholesterol levels of yours really? In this episode called Rediscovering Real Nutrition, The Courage to Follow the Science. Professor Tim Noakes, welcome. It's such a delight to have you here. Thank you, Melody. It's my pleasure indeed. I really wanted to have this discussion with you because after having unpacked a little bit in uh, previous discussions that I've had with Sally Fallon Morrell and Nina Teicholz, some of the issues that really kicked off the demonization of saturated fats in the 20th century, I wanted to continue down the road and discuss what's happened with carbohydrates. Because 
carbohydrates have really become an issue in our lives, I think. Uh, they're causing a huge amount of illness, but yet we still have a medical profession that pushes the notion, and certainly a, a, a profession of dietitians and nutritionists, who push the notion of healthy whole grains. So to me, this really needs to be sorted out. And as far as I'm concerned, you're the man. So, uh, but I, as I understand it, you used to be a fan of carbohydrates yourself. Goodness me, I was right in the front lines. Uh, my, I started my scientific research in 1976. I had just qualified as a medical doctor and decided I wanted to do science and I wanted to study sport. And I was an active marathon runner. And in my very first year at medical school, the studies came out from Stockholm, from Sweden, showing that the more carbohydrates you ate, the faster you ran in marathons and the longer you could sustain an exercise intensity. Was this the, was this the beginning, sorry to interrupt, was that the beginning of no. the notion of carb loading? Absolutely. Okay. It, it starts in like the late 60s and then it breaks onto the world stage just as I'm becoming a medical student who knows nothing about research methodologies and so on. But but I'm told now, this is gospel. My professor of physiology says, no, no, absolutely, this is the whole story. So what had happened was that we reduced all of sports performance down to one variable, how much carbohydrate you ate. I mean, how ludicrous is that? But anyway, that was the model. So with that background, and I'm running marathons, and we start to do the carbo-loading story, and we all think it works, and it doesn't, by the way. For me, it never worked. But anyway, I couldn't see it at the time, and it took me 20 years to see it. And then in 1977, I researched in, guess what, in cardiology and what happens in 1977, the dietary guidelines from the U.S. come out. And my professor at the time, Professor Lionel Opie, is the leading cardiologist in South Africa. The, the unit in which I'm working is linked to Chris Barnard, who's done the world's first human heart transplant. I was just so, thinking South Africa, really, what a place to be so, in a leading cardiology unit. That's right. So we really thought we knew something. So when my professor tells me, Tim, uh, that saturated fat's gone, boy, that bacon and eggs is gone. You've got to have cereals and grain for breakfast and no more fat. Well, I followed that advice for 33 years. And then eventually I realized it had hurt me that I was sick. I had type 2 diabetes, despite the fact that I'd run all these marathons and had kept fit all my right. life and had kept physically active. And then I realized what my problem was my father had developed type 2 diabetes and died from it. So I had a very strong genetic connection, and then I'd eaten all this carbohydrate, and the combination was enough to cause my diabetes. So for the last six years, I haven't eaten very much. I've eaten 25 grams of carbohydrate a day, and I've completely turned my, my health around, and I finally began to look into this question and, and came across people like Gary Taubes' writing and Nina Teicholz, who you spoke about, and, and, of course, Sally Fallon and, and the, the Western Price Organization. And I just realized, you know, it's been a big scam and we've got to, got to reverse it. And, right. and I think that there are, two, there are two problems. The first problem is that dietitians are not taught that association studies do not prove causation. So the whole basis, the epidemiological basis for nutritional advice is completely wrong because it's based on associational studies. And so... What they do is they select the associational studies that show that, for example, cereals help make are healthy. But when there's a randomized controlled trial which shows that cereals and grains make no difference to your health whatsoever, they ignore that. But the, but yet they'll tell you we're evidence based. 
Well, if you're evidence-based, you go for the highest level of evidence, which is randomized controlled trials, but they just ignore that. And there are no randomized controlled trials to support any of the dietary guidelines that we currently have. And that's what Nina Teichel's job has been to show that it's all based on, on bad science. It's really absolutely terrifying. The science is is simply absent. When I first encountered the work of um, Gary Tobbs, uh, I started basically with his insight reading the actual research. And I'm pretty good at reading research. I'm a marketer by trade, but we read research all the time. We're very good at spotting what's going yeah. on there. And with the assistance of people like Gary Torbs, oh, my God, you start to see that there's nothing here. There's actually <laughs> no evidence. And yeah. you start to wonder what the heck happened there. <laughs> yeah. Weren't well, there any scientists in the room? Well, they were being paid off and, uh, you know, indirectly. They weren't being directly paid. So the other thing I've done in my life was to take on Pepsi-Cola over a product they produce called Gatorade, which, which is supposedly makes you run faster if you drink lots of it. And, and I worked out that, that the way they were marketing was going to cause harm and perhaps death because they were over-marketing the need to drink during exercise. And we were the first people to describe people in South Africa who developed this over-drinking syndrome during exercise. They'd become waterlogged and almost died. Fortunately, no one died. But I predicted the first woman to die would be a female marathon runner in the United States of America. And it exactly happened in 1993. A lady running a marathon in America died from this very condition and no one recognized it. So they treated her incorrectly and so on. And so I predict that. And, and what I realized was, you see, the guidelines for the drinking guidelines were promoting, which supposedly scientifically based and, and supported by these august sports medicine bodies saying you must drink to excess during exercise, essentially. And what they'd done was they found these, the scientists who didn't go to Yale or Harvard, slightly less good universities, and they pumped these guys up. And unfortunately, once you accept money from a, from a company and you accept to go to a conference or you accept to be or things paid to go to, to a conference or you, you attend one of their conferences, you're in trouble because now you will never see the, the, the reality. You'll always be over-promoting the product. And so what, that, what, what Gatorade did was they put together 10 conferences in exotic places and they invited 40 scientists to it. And that was the core 40 who for the next 10 years would make sure that everyone believed that lot, drinking lots during exercise was healthy for you. And the olive oil industry did exactly the same. And Nina Teichel describes that in her book. They, they get the scientists to buy in and into the sort of core of people who believe they're sort of elite. And yes, they, they aren't. Do. Yeah, and it gives them And it's a marketing expense. It's when you're looking at it from the budget side, it's in the marketing budget. It's pure marketing. Yeah, exactly. And, and the scientists don't understand that. So to come back to my position, we were doing my whole career in science starts on carbohydrate loading and giving people athletes carbohydrates during exercise. And we developed the first product in the world for athletes to use during exercise, a, a so-called goose. They were developed in Johannesburg in South Africa in, in 1984, 1985. And it even had my name on it, had called Lepin FRN. Ford Ice was the one runner, Rose was the other runner, and myself, Noakes. 
And so I, we were right up there. And by the irony is that we're all great friends and all of us have insulin resistance and all of us eat high fat diet now. <laughs> so, oh, really? You've all seen the light. <laughs> we all saw the light. And, and sorry, let me make that point that what the people didn't understand 20 years ago, and they still don't understand today, is this the widespread incidence of this condition, insulin resistance. And if you have insulin resistance, you cannot tolerate carbohydrate. And so what's happened is as we've increased the carbohydrate intake in the diets, the insulin-resistant people like myself have started to develop type 2 diabetes and obesity, and that's become epidemic, and it's epidemic for simple reasons. We've exposed this insulin-resistant population to a high-carbohydrate diet, and the dietitians and the scientists still don't accept that. They, they think everyone's perfect, you can metabolize carbohydrate, but you can't if you're insulin-resistant. Would you, so, would you postulate that diabetes and obesity are basically the same illness then it, it even it's even more than that the the disease is insulin resistance now insulin resistance is not a disease it's a character it's a biological state which is very prevalent for example california noted, announced a few weeks ago that 50 percent of californians are insulin resistant because they have diabetes or pre-diabetes in fact it's much more than that but that tells us the majority of people and, and can you be uh, genetically predisposed to that so that it, on the same diet, one person may experience insulin resistance and another one may not? You know, I'm going to give a personal example in that we, we're born with the insulin resistance oh. and the degree of insulin resistance and the degree to which it develops in response to carbohydrates is clearly very different. So we know that the, the youngest child to develop diabetes is now three years old. And I can tell you that child would have been born to a diabetic mother who ate a lot of carbohydrate during her pregnancy, and she weaned the child onto a high-carbohydrate diet. And that's the ideal combination. So he had the genes, and then he's exposed to this high-carbohydrate diet from day one of conception. Now, it just just this is a lovely story. My sister it was, was a little large as a child. And suddenly at the age of 19, she lost weight and she's been skinny all her life. And, and when no one noticed or worried about it. Three years ago, remember, I reconverted to, the, to this low-carb diet three years ago, uh, six years ago. Three years ago, she said to me, you know, Tim, 50 years ago, I converted to the Atkins diet. <laughs> and I said, but, <laughs> I said, why didn't you tell me? So she said, because you're the expert. I couldn't tell you you were wrong. <laughs> and she she has got perfect glucose control. Wow. She didn't run runs. She said lean, no carb diet, all her life, no running. Me, lots of running, lots of carbohydrates, I developed type 2 diabetes. Her genes, I think, were worse than mine because she put on weight much earlier than I did in her life. Right. And so, and so that's, that's my point. My point is that, that insulin resistance is very prevalent. And, but it, it becomes apparent when you feed people a high-carbohydrate diet. And then it's, it's dependent on something which we don't know about, probably genetics, about how quickly you, you develop the type 2 diabetes. But let me extend it further. Hypertension is not the condition. Insulin resistance is a disease. You don't have hypertension. You have insulin resistance. And one of the symptoms is high blood pressure. You don't have heart disease, you have insulin resistance, and one of the symptoms is arterial disease in the coronary arteries. 
you don't have diabetes, you have insulin resistance, and one of the one of the symptoms or signs is diabetes. And the same, I believe, with cancer and dementia. They're all the same disease with the same mechanism. So this this underlying issue is basically an inflammatory problem then? I think it becomes an inflammatory process, but the, in, the initial response is the hyperinsulinemia, the over-secretion of insulin, so that every time you eat carbohydrates, you over-secrete insulin. And in my opinion, humans were not designed to do that. And the biological evidence is very simple, and it's a question no one ever asks. And the, and the question is this, why does your blood glucose rise when you eat carbohydrate? That's the question. The interesting. Question. Yeah. Because they don't, they don't, you know, they ask the opposite. You see, oh, your glucose goes up when you eat carbohydrates, and then what happens? Will you secrete insulin? But why do you have to secrete insulin? And the answer, in my view, is that we only have five grams of carbohydrate in our entire bloodstream, which is five liters. So, so, so however we were designed, carbohydrate was never a big issue because we have so little carbohydrate in the body. And we have so little in the bloodstream. And we get by. In fact, the brain can live on one, one gram in the bloodstream, not five. We know that maximum glucose uptake in the brain occurs at a level of one gram of glucose in the bloodstream, not at five. So we've already got excess glucose availability for the brain. And of course, we're always told, you know, you've got to eat carbohydrates to, to keep your brain functioning. That, yes. That's nonsense. So, so that, that's my point. And the reason why the blood glucose rises is because you can't stop the natural production of liver glucose in the liver. It's impossible to shut it off completely. And tell, that tells me that humans were not designed to eat lots of carbohydrate. Because if we were, we would shut off all glucose production in the, in the liver, but we can't. And we're actively studying that at the moment. And that, that then becomes the defining characteristic of diabetes, inability to shut off glucose production in the liver. That is the, that's the original problem. And as a consequence of that, then you have to over-secrete insulin because the insulin is not working properly. And when you over-secrete insulin, it causes all these other issues. And the man who showed that is Gerald Raven, and he started showing this work in the 1960s, and he's been completely sidelined because he, from Stanford, Center of Global Cardiology, he worked out that a high-fat diet was the treatment for insulin resistance, but he, could never, he never advertised it because he would have been thrown out of America. His well, career would have ended if he'd said that. Yeah, they really, there has been this, this situation, I guess, for the last half a century where uh, really until we got social media that any, anyone in the world of science who stood up and said anything that wasn't the party line on carbohydrates and unsaturated fats would have their career destroyed. A absolutely. And, you know, someone tweeted last night, and uh, this is no reference to any particular country, but they said, and because I'm sure it's a global problem, they said free speech is not allowed in 80% of Australian universities. And it's not allowed at my university because I was sidelined for going against the, 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 the high-fat, uh, sorry, the low-fat, high-carbohydrate diet and the diet heart hypothesis. I was humiliated, publicly humiliated by my own university for saying that. The, which is shocking. Yeah, and it didn't. Be, it just wasn't a scientific debate. I was wrong uh, because I was wrong because everyone else said the opposite, and and that's where we've we've really lost it in our universities. And and you you, you draw attention to that. Well, we now have we now have this notion that a high carb, low fat diet is the solution 
to good health and particularly filled with I'm saying in quotation marks healthy whole grains and it is it's just it's almost a an orthodoxy a religious orthodoxy which is only just now starting to be I think chipped away at by people such as yourself but look at really what they did to Dr Atkins and how they demonized him although I'm a little critical of him because having failed many years ago on Atkins myself, mm. I felt mm. that he had pulled his punches on the yeah. on the issue of the high fat uh, portion of his diet. I felt he could have been more clear about that. Uh, and I felt that he pulled his punches a little bit simply because there was so much opposition to what he yeah, had to yeah. say. Well, the, the same applies to Gerald Raven. Uh, because he did studies in the 1980s showing that you could re- you could control insulin resistance. So he's a man who describes the condition. And he says it just got better the less carbohydrate you ate. But he would never come out and say that. When the, his research showed that. And he stopped doing that research. All he had to do was to do a couple of clinical trials on a very low carbohydrate diet, publish them, and he would have won the Nobel Prize in time. <laughs> but he held back. He held back because his career, his career, his laboratory would have been shut down. That's what would have happened. So he had a choice and he made that choice. And probably it's a wise choice because he did continue to study the insulin resistance syndrome and was able to increase the the quality of his research, which he wouldn't have been able to do if he'd said the truth. No, absolutely not. And even today, and I have discussions with uh, doctors and dietitians and nutritionists pretty much every day of the week on many of these subjects, and they are still pushing the... They're still pushing the line. They're still pushing people to go and buy themselves uh, breakfast cereals for breakfast and orange juice and basically to have 20 teaspoons of sugar for their breakfast and telling them that that is what they need to do, even if they're a diabetic. Yeah, that that is criminal advice as a diabetic myself. I mean, you just have to measure your glucose to know what's going on and and how fragile your glucose control is, and just a little bit of extra carbohydrate, oof, your blood glucose goes through the roof, and it's astonishing. You know, Nina Teichold made a really interesting statement last week, which I had never thought about, and she said the reason why the dietitians have to keep promoting the intake of breakfast cereals is because they're fortified, because if you eat that diet, it is, it's nutrient deficient in certain components, which are potentially added to the, the breakfast cereals. And because the, the, diet, the only diet that's balanced is a high-fat animal-based, animal product-based diet. That is balanced and it's nutrient-dense and you won't get nutrient, nutrient deficiencies. So the, the poor old dietitians are in the corner now because someone is going to finally show, and we're working with Karen Zinn in New Zealand, a dietitian who's gone this way, to because she's identified that the, that the conventional diet as it's prescribed now, sorry, the the, the low-fat diet, is nutrient poor and it's deficient in certain vitamins, particularly vitamin D. And that, that's just been ignored. And it's going to come to the fore that the only way you can get a balanced diet is to eat a high-fat diet. Yes. this It's very interesting because many people have been indoctrinated to think of the carbohydrates they're eating as the nutrition. And so you often hear the carbs and particularly the grains being referred to as nutrient dense, which is the term you just used. It's commonly used, but it's used for carbohydrates instead of for fats. That's very good. Thank you for making that point. I will. (laughs) 
incorporate yes. that in my thinking. Yeah. You need to look out for that because it's it's just a complete it's complete indoctrination, and so people have been taught that that that's where the nutrients are, when in fact uh, the carbs are very low in nutrients, except for this carbohydrate yeah. in general. You know, just as an aside, it's very funny, but with a colleague, we, we wrote an article on a low-carb, high-fat, a sort of a review of all the evidence, why it's so good and, and where it benefits patients. And we submitted it, and I got a 25-page, well, probably a 15-page rebuttal, nothing to do with what we'd actually written, but telling me why I was wrong about the low-carb diet. And it was just all this diatribe. And I've learned it's impossible to change people's opinions. These opinions are so fixed that they will never change. I do think part of it is about, sorry to interrupt, I do think part of it is about the doctrine of uh, caloric balance and Mm -hmm. energy Mm -hmm. balance. And I do think that um, until we get past this notion that that everything is about the energy that we take in versus the energy we take out, that we won't actually get to the nutrition perspective. I can see that as well. Energy, of course, is a big part of the carb story in marketing. And I noticed that some of the worst foods that are out there are sold under the energy banner, uh, which goes back to your Gatorade story i guess it's all and and the carb loading it's still sold as energy we still have brands like milo which are positioning themselves in many countries around the world as a as a source of energy for children it's a really big burst of sugar and grain yeah, exactly and that's an addictive burst and so of course you feel great for five minutes but then you come down later on and what what happens when people who have insulin resistance and they go off a high carbohydrate diet they suddenly get all the energy and the energy is constant. It's not up and down. And that's what I really like about it. And that's why so many athletes in difficult sports where you've got to concentrate, like golf or, or tennis or, or cricket, are converting to this diet because they, they've got a constant level of concentration. It doesn't go up and down. And that's really important. And so that's certainly what I've noticed, that I've just got, at my age, 66, got so much energy. But it's a consistent energy. It's not fluctuating. I don't have to go and eat to get energy or drink or whatever. It's always there and it's always consistent. Would you uh, suggest that or would you agree with the idea that part of the issue that we've also got is that we don't want to admit that nutrition issues are causing the obesity epidemic. There's a lot of judgmentalism, I note, still out there about people who are obese. And there's a a tendency for uh, just the average person to really hang on to this thought that obese people have become obese purely because they're lazy, or because they're gluttonous or both. And this is really (laughs) what Gary Taubes addressed, of course. You know, I was in a conference in, in Ireland last year, and, and Ireland's got a rising obesity problem. And you just have to look at the food supply because that's the cause, as we'll come back to. And we had a roundtable discussion, and one, one doctor got up and said, you know, I've got this patient who's got high blood pressure, and her, she's about 20 kilograms overweight, but I'm reluctant to tell her she's overweight because, you know, this will do that, that, and the other. And I said, listen, what's the problem? Tell her, you have a genetic disorder called insulin resistance. That's 
bad luck, you know, you were born that way. But the way we reverse it, it's not your fault. We just make sure you eat less carbohydrate. And as soon as you stop eating the carbs, your blood pressure is going to normalize, your weight's going to fall off, and you will be a healthy, normal person. And that's all we have to do. You know, I, I, I've never had so many hugs in my life. Every day, I just have to go down to the marketplace and 10, or not maybe 10, that's an exaggeration, of women will come and hug me. And it's always the same. You saved my life. I had this eating disorder, blah, blah, blah. I was called into the cabin of the airplane I was flying in on the other night. And the captain, after the flight, not during, but after the flight, he called me and he said, Prof, I just want to thank you. You know, my whole family's on the Banting diet, the low-carb diet. But I want to tell you who's benefited most from it. He said, we've all benefited. My daughter of 13, she swims eight kilometers a week, and she's fat. And she was terribly embarrassed about this. And she, here she is burning all these calories. She couldn't control her weight. She went on your diet. She is now slimmed down. She looks amazing. He said, Fantastic. you know what that's done for her personal self-esteem? It's amazing. And, so, and yesterday I was at a meeting and a lady came in and she started crying. She said all nice things about me. She said, you just gave me my life back at 50. I feel like I'm 25. I just wish I'd been on this diet all my life because I lost 30 kilograms. And I just feel amazing. And my self-esteem is all there. And she just kept crying. And that's the issue. It's not, you're quite right. It's not the patient. The reason we tell, say it's a patient because we've failed as doctors and dietitians. We've failed. So we say, well, we can't be wrong. You must be wrong. So it's your fault. So my point is, you just tell people, listen, you're insulin resistant. That's not your fault. That's your genes. And insulin resistance is not a problem. Just don't eat carbohydrates and you will make your, your health 100%. That's all you have to do. It's the food environment that's killing you. And, and we wrote this book, Real Meal Revolution, which I'm sure we'll come to. And the reason it's been so successful is simple. We said, we said, you're not the problem. You may be obese, but you're not the problem. It's the food environment. You're making the wrong food choices. Just change your food choices and you'll be thin and healthy. That's all you have to do. And, and that's why it's, so, it's done so amazingly. Because we, we put the blame where the blame lies. And the blame lies with the food production industry. I love how Dr. Robert Lustig described yeah. it when he talks in his amazing lecture, Sugar, the Bitter Truth, which people can find on YouTube, that he talks about babies just a few months old who are obese. And mm. he says, it, are they lazy babies? <laughs> are they gluttonous babies? It's not, yeah. it's not laziness. It's not gluttony. It's a combination of environmental factors. And as you're saying, they're clearly born with an, yeah. a tendency to insulin resistance. Exactly right. Yeah. Which, which then obviously gets worse. And, and it gets worse. This is what I learned from Jason Fung, who came to our conference in, in February last year in Cape Town. And he said insulin resistance, every time you eat carbohydrates, you make your insulin resistance worse. So the carbohydrates, every time you secrete insulin in response to carbohydrate ingestion, you slightly worsen your insulin resistance. And that's why obesity is a time-dependent disease because you've got to get more and more insulin resistant and then the disease really becomes apparent. So some, it's important. So some yeah, people, some people uh, uh, really classify the low-carb diet and what in South Africa is called banting after uh, the Englishman who designed a low-carb diet in the 1800s. Um, they classify it as high-protein. Would you like to speak to that? Because that was done, of course, to Dr. Atkins, and it all became about yeah. the notion of high-protein instead of the issue of carbs and fats. 
Well, it's not a high protein diet. And uh, because you can't eat a high protein diet, it'll kill you. I'm sorry, it won't kill you. You'll get so sick that you will just stop eating it. And we've known that for many years. And anyway, we, we studied up the people we've put on the diet and they're all eating a high fat diet. It's not a high protein diet. So that's completely fallacious. And the people who promote that simply don't, don't understand what the diet's about. So the other point is that when you go on this diet, you, you reduce your calorie consumption dramatically. And so I've been told, and I remember I was debating a cardiologist who's 120 kilograms. You see, and he's telling me, Dr. Noakes, by telling people to eat this fat, you're going to kill them from heart disease and so on and so forth. So the reality is 120 kilograms, he's eating one third more calories than me, at least. So if he's eating a moderate fat diet, he'll probably be eating more grams of fat than I am, but without realizing it. The irony, he doesn't realize it. He's eating so many calories that even on a relatively low fat diet, he's still probably eating more fat calories than I am. So that's the point. You, the, when you're on this diet, it is a low calorie diet. And therefore, if you're eating a little bit more fat or the same fat, it becomes a so-called high fat diet. But it may be no more fat than you were eating before from foods that you didn't even realize were full of fat, like baked foods and cakes and so on. Well, I've, uh, when you speak of some of the bad research that's been done over the years, I have a particular memory of a piece of research that was, I think it came out of Sweden, where they weren't really even me measuring meat consumption uh, or fat consumption specifically, but they looked in an epidemiological survey at the consumption of cakes and biscuits mm -hmm. and chips and things like that. And then they classified all of those things holistically as fat. That's right. And somehow it turned out to be yeah. fat, <laughs> fat's really bad for you. <laughs> when the, and, and still, uh, this is what diabetic associations and even the NHS in the UK promotes. Uh, it says, you know, don't eat cakes and biscuits because they're full of fat. Yeah, no, exactly right. In fact, I think it was Ansel Keys who made that error, that he, in his studies of the Mediterranean diet, he classified uh, those foods that you mentioned as high-fat high diets. And just he never mentioned sugar in the analysis. They didn't just ignore them. Interesting. I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on refined carbohydrates versus the less refined and to sort of get your – I think, first off, your response. What is your response to the term healthy whole grains? They don't exist because if you ate whole grains, you wouldn't digest them. They just go past through your gut undigested. So there's no, no one's eating whole grains. You can't because, as I've indicated, and anyway, whole grains probably contain many anti-nutrients that you wouldn't want in your body anyway. So the whole grain story is, is bogus. It just doesn't exist. All the grains that we're eating are refined because we wouldn't digest them if, we, if they weren't. So that's the first point. The second point is, if you're insulin resistant, it's the carbohydrate load that worries you. It doesn't matter if it comes in slowly or fast, it's the carbohydrate load, because you're going to secrete insulin to control that load. It doesn't matter if it comes fast, i.e. you digest it quickly, high glycemic index. Yes, I'm about to ask foods. you about that. Does that mean that you... Uh, you really don't put much stock in the notion of low glycemic index foods versus high glycemic index foods. <laughs> the Sydney University of Sydney garbage. It's utter garbage. Yeah. <laughs> so it's glycemic <laughs> is what matters. 
Yeah, yeah in effect, exactly right. It's the, it's carbohydrate. That's the problem. And sure, you may secrete insulin less rapidly. Your glucose might go up less rapidly, but you'll secrete a lot of insulin anyway. And insulin is what you're trying to prevent. The rise in insulin is what you're trying to prevent. And you do that by preventing, by failing to eat the carbohydrates. And there are many studies showing that a high-fat diet outperforms a low-glycemic index diet on any of the measures you like in terms of reversal of insulin resistance. So the glycemic index is, put it to bed, it's meaningless. It's also meaningless because you don't eat carbohydrates just by themselves. You always eat them with other foods as well. Yes, that's exactly right. You do. So um, I can hear people out there in listening to this at some point in the future saying, but the fiber, we need the whole grains for the healthy fiber. Your answer to that? You get more fiber on our diet than you get on the standard diet. And that's because we eat vegetables and we eat things like avocados, which is the most potent fiber content as far as I know. And the whole fiber story actually also comes from my university. Do you know the irony? Wow. We've had, a go at, we've had a go at the University of Sydney. Let's have another go at the University of Cape Town. <laughs> Love it. The, the first paper that Keyes wrote describing the diet heart hypothesis, he wrote with two scientists from the University of Cape Town. And it was published in, I think, The Lancet in 1954. It's the first description of the diet heart hypothesis. Keyes is not the first author. The first author is a South African. And the final author, I think, was Professor Brock, who was my first med professor of medicine. So, and you know what they did? They looked at three different populations in Cape Town, my very city. They're the African community, the so-called colored community, and the white community. And guess what? The whites had more heart disease and they ate more fat. And the traditional Africans ate less, carbo less fat and they had less heart disease. So it was obvious. It was eating the fat that was causing the white men to die in Cape Town. And that's, that's, that's the first, that was it, that was 1954. Even before he published his seven counties study, which kind of was the next step. But there, it starts right here in Cape Town. And sorry, the other author was Traswell. And, and what happened next was they realized there was another guy called Cleve. And in, in Durban, there was another doctor, Campbell. And Cleve and Campbell came up with the idea that sugar was the problem. And so that was the one theory. The other theory was, no, it's not the sugar, it's the absence of fiber. And Traswell and the University of Cape Town drove the low fiber problem. They said, what's happened is when you're sugar, eating a lot of sugar, you're not getting any fiber. So it's a lack of fiber that's causing the problem. So the fiber story comes right from my university, as far as I can see it. And it's actually, the evidence for it is, is not all that strong. But the point remains that if you're eating a good banting high-fat diet, you've got plenty of fiber, and you don't need to worry about this excess fiber. And then finally, you know, humans, we're not herbivores. We are carnivores, and we, our gut is designed to eat animal products. And the, yes, we do have a little need for fiber, but you can easily cover it by eating relatively simple foods. This is something I'm really only coming across lately, which is this notion of humans as a carnivore and I can tell you right now I know an awful lot of people who will freak out at that thought uh, because personally I've defended quite vigorously over a long period of time that we are omnivores as opposed to herbivores so yeah. uh, but this has got to do with our gut length right yeah exactly the, the colon 
in humans. And that's why we've got thin waists. Now, if you want to see a real herbivore, go and look at the chimpanzees uh, or you, you go and look at chimpanzees and gorillas. Why do they have this huge gut? Because they've got this uh, enormously long colon to digest the plants. But, but did they ever tell you what's the product of that digestion? It's saturated fat. So the herbivores convert carbohydrates into saturated fat, which provides 75% of the energy that they, digest, that they come from their digestion. No one ever tells you that. And what humans learned was why should we have a big gut to do the fermentation to produce the saturated fat that the herbivores do? Why don't we just catch the herbivores and we get the saturated fat for nothing? And that's, why we, that's when we became carnivores because we made that realization that that uh, animal animal fats were animal sorry animal products were much more nutrient dense and they could provide our brains with the fat we needed without us having to have this huge gut. So, do you eat uh, personally a ketogenic diet? I mean, you said you eat about twenty five grams of carbs a day. So, in a lot of people, that would be a ketogenic. Yeah, my 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 fasting ketone bodies is about zero point six. And if I go and run a half marathon, it'll get up to about three or four. So that's the range I run in. But um, that's, I don't call that ketogenic. I, that's not, I think to be ketogenic, you probably want to have value of about two or three most of the time. I can't, I can't get there because you have to eat a very low protein diet. You really, for me at least, you have to eat a very low protein diet. And I think after a time, you become less ketogenic. And I probably had higher ketone levels six years ago than I have today. But I don't specifically look at being ketogenic. I just try to eat lots of fat. And if I'm going to eat protein, I'll, I'll eat it and not, not really worry about it. I just focus on my glucose and try to keep that in the normal range. Okay, so you, you don't feel that diabetics actually necessarily have to eat a ketogenic diet to uh, maintain their health then? Well, just just low that, carb? Yeah, it's low carb, but it's extremely low carb. It must be 25 grams or less. Right. That, if you want to get any chance of surviving diabetes, you have to get, eat only 25 grams of carbohydrate a day. And, and the evidence is abundantly clear. It's all in the literature. And if, people, if diabetics are not being told it, they're not getting the right advice. And it's time that there was a class action against dietetic organizations and diabetes organizations which tell us to eat carbohydrate if we're diabetic. That is criminal neglect, neglect of the published literature. I actually agree with that because the literature – if you read it, if you look at the decent studies that are out there, the literature supports a low-carb mm. diet and particularly for diabetics. And it's biologically obvious. The problem with diabetes is you have a liver that's overproducing glucose. That's the bottom line. It's not that the liver glucose is not getting taken up by the muscles. That may be so, but that's not the cause. The cause is a glucose overproduction in the liver. Why would you want to add more glucose to that system? So, and then you see, like my father was told, Mr. Noakes, you know, you're going to die because you're not getting enough glucose to your brain. You must eat biscuits every three hours or something. You must eat carbohydrates every three hours. My father didn't die because his brain wasn't getting enough glucose. He died of disseminated arterial disease. And that is what diabetes is all about. It's all about two things, overproduction of glucose in the liver and disseminated arterial disease. And if you want to prevent the problems, you have to control glucose, control insulin in order to prevent the disseminated arterial disease. And let me add another breakthrough idea that I've realized. 
We're told that the low-fat diet prevents heart, arterial disease, or prevents heart disease. It's true the incidence of heart disease has gone down in the last 50 years. It's at the same time that we've adopted this diet, but at the same time, the diabetes rates have shot up. And if you understand that diabetes is an arterial disease, then you have to say the low-fat diet is causing arterial disease. It's not preventing it. And it is, and we just, it's gone under the radar because everyone wants to focus. Everyone wants you to focus on heart disease. Oh, but what about this, these 50 operations we had in the hospital where we cut legs off because they had peripheral vascular disease? Oh no, that doesn't count. We don't, that, that's not arterial disease, not heart disease. It's arterial disease. And as soon as you realize that diabetes is an arterial disease, you realize that the low fat diet has caused arterial disease. And that's a terribly important message for everyone. If you think eating a low-fat diet is going to prevent arterial disease, there's utterly no evidence. All the evidence is the exact opposite. Can you address the fact that carbs actually become fats? I think a lot of people don't know that. They think that the fat that they eat becomes fat in their arteries, and that's where they're getting the arterial disease. Fantastic. And, you know, there's a paper out like two months ago in, in one of the lipid sorry, one of the liver specialty journals, which shows that the cause of the atherogenic dyslipidemia, the abnormal lipoproteins, not cholesterol, the lipoproteins in which the cholesterol is bound, the abnormalities develop when you have a fatty liver. Fatty liver is the cause of the arterial disease. And you get a fatty liver in people who are insulin resistant and eat high carbohydrate diets. And the liver now becomes flooded with fat because it converts the carbohydrate to fat. And as the fat accumulates in the liver, it affects the liver's other functions. The liver becomes more insulin resistant. And then it starts to churn out all the bad things that cause us to develop arterial disease. So the diet-heart hypothesis is wrong. It's the diet-liver-heart hypothesis. And Ah, then we... Interesting. (laughs) When you understand the liver's component, it's all carbohydrates. And that was, you know, what Gerald Raven showed in the 1960s. I've got this fabulous diagram he shows. The more insulin you secrete, the more triglycerides your body produces in the liver. It's insulin drives triglyceride production in the liver. So therefore, the fatty liver is entirely dependent on the carbohydrate content of the diet and how much insulin you're secreting. And that's... So that it, the irony is the liver specialists still don't realize it because they're also on the fat story. So they're still saying, oh, it's the fat in the diet that's causing a fatty liver. But the penny is going to drop maybe in the next year or two. Yeah, and so I, I feel story, like it's, it's close. <laughs> so the, the, the penny is going to drop and the liver specialists are going to say, actually, guys, it's the carbohydrates in the diet that cause fatty liver and cause the arterial damage. And then, and, the, and then eventually the cardiologist will have to acknowledge it or else they won't be treating patients. There's a whole thing that you sort of open up there, which is the glucose versus fructose issue. Mm. And this is a big issue because, of course, table sugar is made up of roughly equal proportions of glucose and fructose, but so is high fructose corn syrup. Yeah. Uh, and they are, they have different effects in the body, and of course, Dr. Lustig has has dealt with this in his lecture. But um, my understanding is that fructose actually doesn't give you an insulin response. I may be wrong there, but that yeah. it does cause fatty liver. Yeah. 
It goes straight to the liver. That's correct. Yeah, you're quite correct. It can only be converted to triglyceride in the liver. So that causes fat directly. But to get glucose to triglyceride, you need insulin. And so that makes it slightly different. So, so sugar has got the worst of the worst because it's, got, it's providing the fructose directly to fat. And then you're also allowing the, the insulin response to the glucose. And that will also cause liver triglyceride production. And some people won't recognize the notion of what fatty liver is, but this is the alcoholic's disease because alcohol causes fatty liver. And that, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but that leads to cirrhosis of the liver. So that's, that's the correct. same disease. Absolutely the same. Yeah, well, it's probably the, the mechanisms might be different. I'm not sure, but who knows? I mean, the alcoholic fatty liver may also be due to high carbohydrate diets. I don't know. But the reality is they both lead to cirrhosis and eventually liver failure and requiring liver transplantation. And so the biggest cause of liver failure and liver transplantation needs is now the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, i.e. the carbohydrate-induced form of this fatty liver disease. It's really quite and terrifying, I isn't it? Because this, we go and sit in our doctor's offices and we've gained a little weight or whatever and we're, you know, we're not as healthy as we used to be. And the doctor is going, by and large, the doctors are still going to tell you to go and eat the very foods that will cause more of this dysfunction. Yeah, it, I, I, you know, since I lost 20 kilograms on this, on this diet and turned my health around and, and I look around me and I see, you know, I'm one of the leanest people I, around. And at, for my age, I'm extremely lean. And I just look at the people and I say, but don't you know, you know, being overweight, it carries such a threat to your health, but particularly to your brain. So I was with a whole lot of academics the other day, and they're all a bit portly. And, you know, they sort of, they sort of know about the diet, but they kind of laugh it off. And I just watched and I thought, you know, you're killing your brain from that diet that you're eating and over-secreting insulin, and you're going to get dementia in the long term. And, and you, unfortunately, at our age, you better be careful. And people just don't understand it because the norm is to be obese. They just think, well, it's fine, and that's – Oh, I'm just the same as everyone else. Well, actually, you're all dying. and You know, you need to understand that. Now, you don't need to be obese even mm, in order exactly. to be suffering from this problem. Yeah, exactly. By the way, paper out recently showed the Japanese have a high rate of diabetes. And we've always said that now, the Japanese have the longest life expectancy and very low rates of heart disease, which are falling, actually. They're getting lower. But it's been replaced by diabetes. Why? High carbohydrate diets, insulin resistance. And they're living longer, and now they're developing their diabetes. There, there was something like 11 million Japanese with diabetes. I mean, I didn't know how big the population was, but that's a huge number. You know, and so it, it, we're always told, you know, you must eat the Japanese diet. Well, it's too high in carbohydrates, even for the Japanese. And I think it's a bit of a myth that the Japanese diet is high in carbohydrates. I think it was always a very low-calorie diet that yeah, contained exactly. a portion of carbohydrates and therefore the carbohydrates weren't, it's really, and I think Torbs had addressed this was it's really about how many carbohydrates you're eating. That's what yeah. it boils down to, isn't it? It, the yeah, rest exactly. of it is, is less mm. of a problem as long as you're choosing whole natural foods, but it, you must keep those carbohydrates down. Yeah, exactly. And it's much like the old pack years in smoking. You know, we used to say, so how many packs of cigarettes do you smoke a day times so many years? 
It's the same. It's the carbohydrates per day times years exposure. And I had 33 years of high exposure to carbohydrates, and that was enough to cause my diabetes. Which is still, it's terrifying, isn't it? Because you were you were focused on sports yeah. medicine, on health, and still you didn't know that you were hurting your own body. There wasn't enough information in your own field. Exactly, because I was focusing on my fabulous low cholesterol and thinking everything was fine. Let's touch and on cholesterol for a second. Because no. <laughs> as a word, we kind of, we've, we've sort of danced around it a little bit, but some people will be worrying when they hear about the fats that yeah. uh, high cholesterol is an actual outcome. And I just want to address it sort of by name. Yeah. Well, I spent last night responding to my, my chief lawyer in my case, in my hearing, he's a SC, and he's a, he's a fabulous guy, and his his sister is insulin resistant, and she's just been told she's on the high-fat diet, and her cholesterol's gone up, and she's got to go into a statin and so on. He says, please, what's the story? You see, so I, I spent a couple of hours writing him a very long letter. And the bottom line is is the following, that that if that the cholesterol is a very, very poor predictor of heart attack risk. It's again associational, and it has such a low hazard ratio that I'm getting technical here. But the, but the association is so poor that you would throw it out. You would say cholesterol has no relationship to heart disease. That's point one. Point two, a paper published this week showed that the best, the best blood measures of your risk of heart attack are always insulin resistance measures. That, that we've known, but it's got completely hidden. But the one that they've come up with is your, you multiply your fasting glucose by your fasting triglycerides and you divide by your body mass index. And that gives you a score. So if you're insulin resistant, you'll have a high fasting glucose, you'll have a high fasting triglycerides, and then your body mass index will also be high. And that will, so that will correct a little bit, but, uh, but it will have a high value. If you are insulin resistant, but eating a high, carbo, high fat diet, sorry, high fat diet, you'll have a low fasting glucose, you'll have a very low fasting triglyceride, and you're low BMI, and your score will be substantially reduced. And so I love this because it, it's really one of the best ways of getting some of the components of the insulin resistance together. Is there I a name for this measure? You know, it's, the paper was published. It's still in press. And oh, okay. Almost, it sounds brilliant. It's the, yeah, it's the TGG value, like the triglyceride glucose over BMI. Value. Yeah. But, it, but, it's, but in the literature, just to come back, cholesterol is such a poor predictor of heart attack risk. That's point one. Point two is... The reason why we measure cholesterol is because it's easy. In 1967, a chap called Goffman looked at the lipoprotein profiles, and he said these profiles are related to heart disease. And when he, but unfortunately, there was only 10, five machines in the whole of America that could measure the whole lipoprotein profile. So when the American Heart Association looked at his data, he said, yeah, well, that's great, but we can't measure all those lipoproteins. Let's just measure cholesterol because it's easy. And so then we went down the cholesterol route. And then we got the statins because we're going to correct the cholesterol. But the reality is that the abnormal lipoproteins, which, are, which you need to look at, are the, the small, dense LDL particles. And you have lots of them if you have a fatty liver. So really, you've got to look at the fatty liver. If you don't have a fatty liver, you, whatever your cholesterol is, it's probably fine. But you, the best measure is if you've got low triglycerides. If you have low triglycerides, then you will have 
whatever your LDL is, the cholesterol, it'll be in the big particles, which are not related to heart disease. So the key is not worry about the cholesterol. Look at your insulin resistance and look at your fatty liver. And you've got to correct those. And you don't correct those by taking drugs. You correct them by eating a low carbohydrate, high-fat diet. So now many people who have gone on to, as, as your um, lawyer's uh, family member did, have experienced when they've gone on to a, a high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet, this transient bump in total yeah. cholesterol. And so they freak out at that and they they're told by their doctors quickly get off it it's going to kill you so they don't need to worry not at all the you know i listen listen, we all got to die from something that's true genetic predisposition to die of heart heart disease but and you may still die of heart disease on the banting diet but what you're not going to do is you're not going to develop diabetes and in my view you won't get dementia and you reduce your risk of cancer so i'm not saying you're not going to have a heart attack because Heart, heart disease is much more complex than we currently understand. But the reality is all your variables, every single heart disease predictor will go down or will improve on this diet, except the cholesterol. But cholesterol is not a risk factor. So therefore, we can exclude it. You've got to look at the totality of the values. And, and we measure maybe 12, 14 different values to show people, gosh, look how much you've improved. And for example, what happened to blood pressure? If your cholesterol goes up and your blood pressure drops 20 millimeters of mercury, which is going to have the bigger effect on your heart attack risk or stroke attack? I can tell you it's your blood pressure. And if you drop your blood pressure by 20 millimeters of mercury and you lose weight, you lose 20 kilograms, if you still have a heart attack, well, that's just jolly bad luck. But your right. health has improved immeasurably. And again, it's this reductionism, you know, that it's cholesterol predicts heart attack risk. It doesn't. It is the worst predictor. And, and the, next, the next point is, that what happens if the cholesterol goes up because it's, help, it's curing your body, it's helping your body, it's healing the body? Because cholesterol is so important for all, so many processes in the body that if your cholesterol goes up, it may be an important sign. Now, and let's get back to the next thing. At my age, a high cholesterol is known to be healthy. It's, will produce, it predicts longer life, lower risk of cancer, and you know, as I've said, longer longevity. And if it's falling, the moment your cholesterol starts falling at my age, you're in trouble. You can predict that you're going to be dying. And I believe that there's some new evidence coming up quite soon in, in which has been a of data of all these studies that show that at my age, above 60, cholesterol is utterly meaningless. It doesn't predict anything. There so, actually seems to be a, a correlation between low cholesterol and people who are presenting with heart attacks in emergency rooms. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, certainly they've got normal or low cholesterol. The, the link I've seen is between cancer and low cholesterol. That, there's clearly a very strong link there. And whether that's just because it indicates your health has gone down and because of the cancer or not. But the, 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 the idea that getting your cholesterol low to improve your health is just there's absolutely no evidence for that at all. And as you're saying, cholesterol is very protective and our body is using it to make, I guess, what is it making with the cholesterol hormones, I presume? Absolutely. And it's immune function and gut function. Everything is dependent on on cholesterol. So to think that you can stop its production in the cells and make people healthier is, is utter nonsense. And of course, we know now that the food that you eat 
isn't really a predictor. The cholesterol in the food that you eat is not really a predictor of your blood cholesterol. Yeah, and Ansel Keys noted that he reported that in 1950s, the late 1950s. And that got mixed, that just got lost. But the, the latest dietary guidelines, if they ever come out, because they're in review again, but they say, well, the cholesterol in the diet's irrelevant. But they could have said that 50 years ago because the evidence was already there. All those people but, who didn't eat eggs for breakfast yeah. <laughs> because they were scared of the cholesterol in the eggs. Exactly. But you know what's so interesting with Zoe Harcom, who's another great writer in this field. She is indeed. She just published her PhD and she makes the very point that if you, if cholesterol in the diet doesn't predict blood cholesterol, then animal fats don't predict because the only cholesterol is only present in animal foods. So if you, if the cholesterol in the diet doesn't impact on your blood cholesterol, then the fat in the diet can't either because cholesterol only comes from animal fats. You know, the, an animal cholesterol in the diet only comes from animal sources. Right. Very interesting. She's wonderful. I love her work. And and she said Keyes could have realized that. The moment he said that cholesterol in the diet doesn't influence blood cholesterol, he should have said, well, therefore animal fats don't either. There was a there was a huge lack of logical progression of thought going on though at that time. Uh, and start right right away, starting with the was it the seven countries study? that yeah. omitted all the data that didn't support the conclusion he wanted. That's correct. No, of, of Ansel Keys. You know, you know, the irony was that near the end of his life, he said, you guys overinterpreted what I said. But by then it had taken such hold that no one would listen to him. Well, by then it had not just taken hold, I think, in the in the research community, but we had seen corporations around the world create these enormous and very financially powerful supply chains and lobby groups yeah. to supply the carbohydrates that became so in demand as a result of the change of the basically the US dietary guidelines which influenced pretty much everybody else exactly and also the vegetable oil industry Yes, the edible indeed. oil industry, which became so powerful and drove the use of polyunsaturated fats, which, by the way, for which there is utterly no evidence that they are healthy, none at all. I and yet, completely continue. agree with you on this. <laughs> <laughs> I have to wonder, what do you think when you walk into a supermarket? Because uh, there's a lot of scary stuff going on in there. Yeah, I think there's like only three counters I'll go to. <laughs> The meat, the the dairy, and uh, and the nuts. That's about it. <laughs> it's it's and really course, terrifying, the, isn't it? Vegetables, yeah. You that's walk down it. aisle after aisle in the supermarket, and it's basically carbohydrates that are being yeah. thrown at you. It's sugar, and it's grain. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, it's frightening. That and you know, I was at a meeting the other day, and they, you know, South Africa is a small country, but the. The food turnover is 500 billion rand a year. And I realized that, you know, how can we ever tackle that? Because that is just such an enormous amount of food is being sold. And most of it is wrong. And but industry is so powerful. How could you ever dent, make any dent on that? Well, you can. Uh, and as a, I have to tell you that as a marketer, <laughs> I have watched over decades now how demand is created 
and massaged for various products and how yeah. we can sit in a room and write a strategy and create demand. So I'm hoping with this little project of mine to just play my little part in, in helping to right. build some demand, but also to help the people on the supply side to yeah. be able to feel that new demand and understand what's going to be required of them. Because at the moment, the the big money is is probably more carb addicted than anybody else. Yeah, exactly. And and I mustn't sound negative because in South Africa, grain sales have gone down, bread sales have gone down since we wrote our book, The Real Neil Revolution. So things are changing. <laughs> and cauliflower sales shot up the roof. Um, ha, so it's, there have been small changes. And meat has actually sales have gone up as well in South Africa. So yes, there have been some changes. Yeah, so changes can take place. Um, so when you, I'm sort of in my mind, I'm walking down a supermarket aisle here and the first thing that pops out at me is the breakfast cereal category yeah. because it takes up in, in pretty much every country uh, where, where you have supermarkets, breakfast cereals take up a pretty big chunk of space. Yeah. They have a lot of what we call shelf blocking. That is, mm. they're high, mm. because they're great big flat boxes they take up a lot of visual space. And so that visual, the amount of visual space that you can create on the shelf, that blocking, as we call it, is uh, part of what enables it to sell. Yeah, so, no, yeah, and they are really, um, I would have to think, is there anything in the breakfast cereal category that you would um, think of as a safe food because people listening to this probably thinking oh well you know i'm not going to eat cocoa pops anymore but they may turn instead to oats for instance yeah the cardboard is probably the safest component of those of those foods <laughs> <laughs> i'm being facetious you mentioned oats you know oats were were are a very part of the staple diet of the people living in the outer hebrides in scotland and they've been very very healthy for generations but the oats they were eating, I think, were different than what we're eating today. So if you can get the real old-style oats, yes, probably that's perfectly safe. The problem is it's what you eat it with. And once you start adding sugar and flour, your metabolism and, and your gut flora has changed so much that, that even the healthiest oats probably aren't any healthy anymore. So it's, it's not just what's in the box. It's what you're eating it with. But I, I, fortunately, what's happening in South Africa is that the cornflakes breakfast cereals are getting so expensive that people are realizing actually if you just add eggs, you get much more nutritional value and you're satisfied, you're satiated, and you don't eat as much. So you can reduce your cost by eating eggs instead of instead of uh, breakfast cereals. So uh, I totally agree with you on this. I think that um, uh, I think that a good uh, fat-rich breakfast with a little bit of protein in it is. Really, for me, it's certainly the best start to the day. It means I can think come afternoon. <laughs> My yes. brain is still functional, which is great for me. Um, I'm thinking of all the people who are also looking at, just to go back to that bowl of oats, because oats have such a heart-healthy halo around them. Mm. There's so many people who are thinking, oh, well, you know, I'll put whole milk on it and honey, they think honey's safe or maple syrup. What are you going to say to those people? Well, they need to sum up the total carbohydrate load. That's the key. Or they should measure their glucose like an hour after that meal. 
And if it's if it's above five, it's not good. So I'm being a very very right. I'm being pretty tough because the glucose will be ten to twelve, or if they're diabetic, it'll be up to fourteen, and that's causing damage around the body. So I just wish people would would eat these carbohydrates and measure their glucoses, and then go and read the literature and see what it means to have a glucose of ten to twelve to fourteen, and the associated high insulins. That's what's killing you. And every time you do that, we're just doing it. So. You know, we send our children off with 120, 150 grams of carbohydrate breakfast, maybe 200 grams. And you just have to know that you only have five grams of carbohydrate in your bloodstream. And so you've suddenly exposed the blood to 200 grams of carbohydrate. Where is it going to go? It's, it can't be burnt immediately. It has to be stored. And right. it's not going to be stored as glucose in the, in the liver and the muscles. It has to be burned or stored as fat. And that's just cycling into the fat cells. And it inhibits fat oxidation so that three hours later you're hungry because you've taken that carbs, you've stuck it into your fat cells and you've still got high insulin and the brain says, I need food, I'm hungry, I'm, I'm starving. And so three hours later you eat more, more carbohydrates at school and you go to the tuck shop and you eat this high carbohydrates and you get hungry again. So the, uh, I, the point I make is that it's not so much the carbohydrate in the, in the meal that's the problem acutely, the problem is it makes you hungry. So you eat more carbohydrates the next meal and more carbohydrates the next meal. So in the day you eat too many carbohydrates and you convert it to fat and that's where you, the obesity begins because you're taking so much carbohydrate and you have to store it as fat. Absolutely. So actually I found that it, with a small amount of carbohydrates that I do consume, I personally do best with them at night. And yeah. Yeah, particularly yeah. when I became menopausal and sleep became extremely elusive. <laughs> I found that that little tiny bit of carb at night really helped me to sleep, but still in an overall very low carb environment. Yeah. yeah, we're not saying you have to avoid all carbohydrates. It's just you have to match your carbohydrate intake to your level of insulin resistance. And that perhaps is what people don't understand. If you're profoundly insulin-resistant diabetic, you just can't eat much carbohydrate. And if you're incredibly carbohydrate-sensitive, then you can eat 200 grams of carbs a day, and you'll probably be safe all your life. But the idea that carbohydrates are an essential, they, they're absolutely non-essential. You do not need one gram of carbohydrates to be healthy. What do you think of the sweeteners that are being used at the moment, um, ranging from synthetic sweeteners to various natural sweeteners that have a you know, like a zero calorie or a zero carb claim around them. Um, what's the, is there any effect on people uh, in terms of their insulin resistance from those? I, I will predict that the insulin resistance will get worse. But, you know, I, I just think that these products probably work very similarly in the brain to sugar and so that they give you the same response, although they're calorie free. My problem is that if you ever want to control your body weight for life, you need to get rid of the sugar any desire to eat sweet foods. That's the key. So it's about a shift to a lower sweetness in no, exactly. level in your life. Exactly. And so, you know, I used to be a sugar, sugar, sugar addict, which most people who are overweight are sugar addicts, which you have to admit. So say I'm a sugar addict and therefore I cannot eat sugar and, the, and I can't use a sweetener because the sweetener will drive me to sugar and the sugar will drive me to more sugar until I get back to the same addicted intake. And most people who fail on this, the low-carbohydrate diet 
fail because they don't address their sugar addiction. If you can address your sugar addiction, you can address any dietary problem. So you do think it's a, a real addiction? Oh, absolutely. No, there's no question about it. And the sugar industry, of course, will try to drive the fact that it's not an addiction. It is. The experts will tell you, they show you the evidence that the sugar acts in the brain at a particular site, which is exactly the pleasure center that's activated by cocaine and heroin. And if you talk to people who have sugar addiction, they'll tell you, listen, this is, this is a terrible addiction. One of the people I work with had alcohol, cocaine, and sugar addictions. And, and she's not clear for all of them for 12 years, but she said the sugar was the worst addiction to get, on, get rid of. I've heard that. I've absolutely heard that. And as a person who's highly sugar addicted myself, I have yeah. to say that if I have a little tiny bit of it, I spiral out of control. Exactly. Precisely. It's like the cigarette for the, for the cigarette smoker or the, the glass of alcohol for the alcoholic. It's, that's alcoholism. You just, you just can't. You can't have it. You can't from have a, it in moderate. Yes. From a behavioral perspective, it is. it looks like addiction. You certainly behave like an addict once you've triggered it. And it is a mm. very, very difficult thing to control simply because sugar is all over the place. Exactly. Exactly. And it's hidden everywhere. Yeah. Well, the, the girl we're talking about, you know, she said that she would go, her dealer... <laughs> Her sugar dealer was the garage the, where she went for petrol. So she was always filling her car up every day. And then what she would do, she'd throw away the peels, you know, the, to hide the addiction. She would throw away the, the chocolate bar wrappers at the, at the garage so no one would see them. Yes. Oh, bless her. I mean, that's exactly the kind <laughs> of thing you do when you're a sugar addict is <laughs> you hide the evidence. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Hilarious. Look, to start sort of um, bringing this discussion to a close, which I, it has just been uh, remarkable and you, you're just so full of information, um, can you talk a little bit about uh, what the diet should look like? What I'm presuming that you're, you're recommending a whole foods diet for people, but I'd like to hear it from you. What, what do you think people should really be eating? So, you know, I'm not advertising the book, but that's where all our ev evidence is. We, we wrote a book called The Real Meal Revolution, and we, we put together a green, yellow, and red list. There'll be and a link to that, by the way, on the website. Oh, There'll be a link for that fantastic. book. Fantastic. So we, we just allow food from the green list, and you can eat as much as you like of it um, until you're hungry. You must just satiate your hunger. That's the key. So that's the first point. So those foods are all real foods. They're not processed foods. They come straight from the farm, and that, that's the way to look at it. If it's in a package and it's got nutrients in it, what, or sorry, a list of nutrients, you shouldn't be eating it because that's been processed and you don't want to eat that. So, so we say the green list, and, and my key is you have to understand the following, that you must only eat to hunger. You don't eat because it's breakfast, lunch, and supper. You eat when you're hungry, and I eat one and a half meals a day now, and sometimes I eat one meal a day. And I have a friend who eats five meals a week. That's what he's got to, yeah. And biologically, the less frequently you eat, the better. There's, because you've got this big gaps between, of fasting between meals. And that's when your metabolism really settles down. Your insulin levels go very low, and you can start to reverse your insulin resistance. But if you're eating every three hours, you're just activating all the mechanisms to work, make the insulin resistance worse. So my key is that you must eat a very big breakfast, lots of fat, lots of protein. That'll satiate you until the evening. 
So you don't want to eat during the day except maybe snack on cheese or macadamia nuts or some jerky. We call that biltong in this country. Yes, you do. And, <laughs> and, and that's it. And so you eat, you know, eat too, if you're a highly active person, you probably need to eat two meals a day, a big breakfast and a nice meal at dinner, which, you know, fish is clearly the, the safest food is fish. There's, I don't think anyone will ever tell you that fish is dangerous. And so fish and vegetables, and that's, that's all you need, a <laughs> big breakfast and fish and vegetables for the evening and the occasional snack on nuts. So simple. And, and what you know, about it, milk? Yeah, you know, I, I, I do eat a lot of milk, drink a lot of, not drink milk, I eat a lot of cheese right. because that's where I get most of my fat from because I just wouldn't survive if I didn't have cheese. But I can digest it. Milk's a problem because it does have too much carbohydrate. So if you're eating, if you're drinking a lot of milk, you're not going to get your carbohydrate intake low enough to, to benefit. But I don't think that milk is necessarily bad, although the paleo group say that you won't, they don't allow milk. Oh, they don't like it at all, no. They don't like it. But, I, you know, I just, I think humans did evolve it. And certainly if you're west, from west, uh, northwest of England like I am, uh, we, we adapted quite quickly to lactose about 5,000 years ago. So it seems to me that if you're from that area, as many Australians will be, that would be, it's safe to eat, uh, eat milk, to drink milk. Yes, I, I, I'm... Uh, a big fan of milk myself but exactly as you say have to watch the intake simply because there is the the issue of naturally occurring sugars in the milk yeah. and obviously that's carbohydrates and it, it, sensitive as um, I am and so many yeah. people as you're saying about two-thirds of Americans probably uh, yeah. so that's a very big percentage of the population who are very sensitive to carbohydrates Exactly right, yeah. And so you can't just go on drinking milk like it was water. You, you can add it to your tea maybe and coffee, but if you want to substitute cream, that, that's even better. Right. Well, look, I'm going to point people uh, very strongly towards your book. I love your work. I'm just very grateful to have had this discussion with you. So Professor Tim Noakes, thank you so much for having joined me today. It's been a great privilege and thank you for asking me such interesting and penetrating questions. I've really enjoyed answering them. I'm Melody Patterson Meta. I'm Melody Patterson Meta. Is reinventing and the this supermarket. Is reinventing the supermarket.